Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to Voices. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations at the University of Sussex and I'm delighted to be hosting today's episode of our What Is series. Marxism in IR has been criticized with regards to many different issues, such as for being overly structuralist, economically deterministic or teleological. Some also still associated with Stalinist Soviet society and policy and other authoritarian attempts to contest the liberal order through communist thought. So a primary task for any Marxist scholar really remains to disentangle the political engagement and critical basis essential to Marxist thought from a blind application of specific events and orthodoxies. And I'm more than honored to have someone with me today who brings an incredibly compelling intervention to the table, namely to one of the core critical Marxist approaches in IR, that is political Marxism. But before we dive deep into this particular area of Marxist thinking and learn about my today's guest-specific approach, let me please introduce to you Dr. Maya Pal. She's a senior lecturer in international relations at Oxford Brookes University. She completed her PhD at Sussex in 2012 and got her first book out in 2020 entitled Jurisdictional Accumulation and Early Modern History of Law, Empires and Capital. She's a wholehearted defender of fair pay and fair working conditions in the UK higher education sector and has also published on critical pedagogy, student resistant and counterconduct. So thank you for joining us today and a very warm welcome to you, Maya. Thank you so much, Judith. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much for that introduction. Hi. Before we get into political Marxism or PM itself, I would like to ask you how you situate your own trajectory in the broader intellectual context of Marxist scholarship. In other words, who inspired you most and how did you get into political Marxism? Great, thank you. Um, well, yeah, I wasn't sure where to start with this question. Uh, there's been so many people, obviously. Uh, but, um, you know, the short story, I guess, is um, I ended up at Sussex after starting uh, studying law in France uh, and realized the, the legal profession was not for me uh, in spite of my deep and continued uh, passion for for the topic um, but I ended up at University of Sussex uh, to do my undergraduate and stayed there uh, uh, you know as long as I could basically throughout my MA and, and PhD and and uh, and went through various phases of Uh, critical philosophy and and, and post-structuralism and Marxism uh, throughout my years there. And I was actually studying philosophy, so that was kind of my first 
big uh, influence uh, and, you know, have been political for, I guess, all my life, but uh, uh, but really was fascinated in 19th century philosophy and literature, German, French and uh, uh, continental philosophy, phenomenology. And uh, ended up in the master's studying with Benno Teschke, Sam Naffo, um, Justin Rosenberg, uh, Beata Jan, you know, an amazing set of people and um, and uh, made a decision to go for Marxism rather than post-structuralism, <laughs> which I was still kind of hesitating uh, at the time. And I think, I'm, you know, it's still a little bit in, in between to some extent in some of my work. But, um, you know, I've done some work on Foucault, as you were mentioning earlier on. So I still haven't completely abandoned the other side. Um, but no, obviously, I, I basically really got interested in the question of law and capitalism, basically. And coming, you know, um, I was, uh, grew up in France, was born in England, I'm bilingual, uh, you know, families on both sides of the channel. And so I was always fascinated by the institutional differences uh, between those two countries, the different law systems. And I was just thinking, well, how, you know, what importance does that, that difference have? And Robert Brenner's work, you know, was uh, given to me and, and I'm still fascinated by it. And it's still one of, you know, extremely influential works. And then Ellen Wood's work, obviously, the kind of two big names of political Marxism. So that was my entry. And so I just continued with a PhD with, with Benno and, uh, and Beata and, uh, and learned so much from them and, uh, in my German dream team <laughs> and uh, uh, so yeah and then continued you know we had a great uh, array of PhD students which I've, you know I guess you've probably experienced as well I hope at, at Sussex and um, that PhD community really really helped and um, and it was an incredible way to to start um, uh, that uh, that journey into developing Marxist scholarship and really thinking concretely about uh, what that entailed. And a lot of you know UCD PhD students as well, and even combined development at Sussex there, and that was a, a fascinating time to, to be there. Yeah, great, thank you. So PM, as you already mentioned, it uh, traces to the work of Robert Brenner and Ellen Wood, and it had its breakthrough with the transition debate on the rise of capital in late medieval England. Political Marxism takes historiographical research seriously and has formulated innovative and rigorous ways to move away from general model building towards historical specification. More recent accounts, such as by Post, Lacher, you already mentioned them, Teschke and Nafo, have decisively advanced Brenner's work. Teschke, for example, does so by further historicizing political geography and IR and by developing PM for international historical sociology with a focus on geopolitics, where NAFO applies PM on the historical emergence of finance. So for non-political Marxism experts, can you talk us through the ways in which their work and how PM more generally posits itself against economic determinism and structuralism and how the thereby rejects nomothetic and teleological models in international historical sociology? Sure, thanks, um, Judith. So, I mean, as you mentioned, I think in your introduction, um, Marxists are generally seen, you know, in IR and beyond as being economic, economically determinist or overly structuralists, and that's just been kind of the easy critique uh, throughout the years. And I guess, you know, many were for quite a long time in, in the, um, you know, mid-20th century, early to mid-20th century. Uh, so I think that criticism was probably uh, justified in many respects. And that's the, the criticism also that political Marxism has used to situate itself in Marxism generally. 
Um, and so political Marxism appeared as, in for some, a quite radical way of nuancing uh, Marxism's approach, right? Um, so, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll answer your question in two parts maybe here. So firstly, how political Marxism situates itself more generally in Marxism, uh, and then we can uh, tackle the issue of the nomothetic and teleological issues in relation to other approaches in international historical sociology. So those are kind of t- two areas of debate and discussions that uh, are linked, obviously, but I, I think are happening a bit separately. Uh, and, you know, to do with the fact that Marxism is not uh, dis- defined by discipline, right? So people will be working in IR as Marxists, but generally they belong to the kind of the Marxist family, if, if we can put it that way, and which defies disciplinary uh, divisions, right? So the point of Marxism is to reject the fact that we are siloed into disciplines, academic disciplines, and, crit- and critiques that. So that's also something always to keep in mind when we're tackling Marxism, and that, that's one of the difficulties, you know, especially for students and others to, to remember that as soon as you're taking on a Marxist approach, you are opening up the disciplinary boundaries. Um, so with that caveat, so uh, to talk about first political Marxism in relation to, to other Marxist strands, and uh, so political Marxism developed uh, in reaction to Althusserianism or to the, the kind of influence of Althusser, Louis Althusser, who was a prominent Marxist philosopher, a French um, in the 70s, and also to dominant uh, Marxist theories that were uh, probably more influential around the world, such as world systems theory and dependency theories uh, in the kind of 60s to 80s period. So those were very structuralist uh, uh, theories and political Marxism uh, really uh, kind of highlighted a lot of the problems with those approaches, saying that they were ahistorical, that they reified capitalism, that they defined capitalism as a fixed logic of accumulation that was then identified universally, that was seen as a totality that uh, couldn't really be broken down easily and, and just lacked specificity. And which also was determined economically by either the law of value, which is kind of key Marxist uh, theory, um, or by and or by the rise of trade and of commercial systems and networks. So uh, mostly in the early modern period, but some have even gone before that. So political Marxism rejects that that uh, those um, kind of empirical starting points, but also the kind of more uh, methodological issues here in terms of reproducing a naturalist fallacy, saying that capitalism uh, was inevitable. You know, it was latent; it was waiting to be uh, liberated by uh, either chains of feudalism or other things, um, and so. Uh, PM thinks that those approaches missed out a lot of factors and had a, 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 the wrong conception of history in a way. So what they call kind of commercialization models, if you want, um, obscured a lot of the conditions that, especially in the early modern economies, uh, uh, distinguished uh, parts of uh, Western and Eastern Europe. So um, political Marxism doesn't deny, if you want, the importance of these commercial or mercantile empires, right? quite the opposite. Um, of course, they were essential to the development of capitalism, but they weren't uh, sufficient in themselves. Um, and this is the point that Marx makes as well, although he then kind of uh, disputes his own himself in, in other volumes of Capital. So it's, it's a contested issue by Marxists, uh, by Marxists uh, and Marx himself. 
But for political Marxists, um, the, the the mercantilism, the commercial uh, rise in the early modern period was not sufficient in itself, on its own, to um, develop capitalism. Right? So that's a key point. Um, so an example is the Spanish Empire was highly complex. It was, you know, developed commercially rich empire. It plundered and extracted uh, colonially, uh, uh, you know, to um, way in in ways that were uh, very innovative and, and new and and not matched by anyone else. But it didn't transform that richness into growth for itself. So it economically stagnated, you know, uh, quite sh- soon after. It was soon kind of in the 17th century until the early 20th. England, on the other hand, was really um, uh, behind the rest of Europe in the 1600s, uh, but then took over everybody else. And that's what political Marxism tries to explain, that divergent outcome of uh, certain economies in uh, early modern Europe. So uh, to do this, political Marxism favours other factors than commercial trade, so uh, the development of wage labour, market dependence, although it's you know, that's kind of what it's seen as being overly using, but it also favours other very important factors such um, as uh, symbiosis between factions of the ruling class uh, in England, uh, processes of large-scale enclosures, dispossession, the role of certain institutions, so we'll come back maybe on that institutionalist aspect, uh, so centralised monarchy, the crown in parliament in England, the common law, agricultural innovations, etc. So there's a whole range of issues that explain the rise uh, and the transition to capitalism. And so political Marxism is against, if you want, this approach that lumps all these factors together to explain uh, uh, capitalism and tries to be more specific by using social property relations. And I think we'll come back to what that is, uh, maybe in your further questions. But the idea is to do rigorous historical work, comparative work, um, uh, rather than the kind of structural economically determined work. So interested in the making of history, I think, as Benno and Sam put it, rather than its consequences. So then I can maybe more briefly, I'll just touch on the question about political Marxism versus the the, the rest of international historical sociology. Um, and by this, I guess, you know, just in case listeners are not that aware with what we mean by international historical sociology. So there's a range of approaches such as uneven combined development, um, kind of recent work on global historical sociology by Lawson and Go. Um, also a lot of focus at the moment on multiplicity, entanglement, these uh, ways of trying to understand the international, uh, theorizing it um, and trying to see how we can replace the old kind of traditional Eurocentric concepts of the state of um, uh, of the, the international system in, the, in its kind of classic 19th century model and trying to find other ways of theorizing IR. So that's the kind of objective. And what political Marxism has a problem with is attempts that will try and develop universal laws and uh, purposefully predetermined developmental paths in explaining modern IR. Right. And that's the issue with the nomothetic and the teleological, right, that you raised. So, and also that's why political Marxism is not a theory in its strict sense, right? It will kind of dispute that and think of itself more as a method, perhaps. Uh, but it would not really, it doesn't want to establish a diagram or roadmap for how the system of states works or, or how to work out how it came about. It's not a theoretical uh, a blueprint. What it does, it gives us warnings about the fallacies of IR theory. 
right? It distance it distances itself from what IR theory wants to do in its classic kind of mainstream sense. Um, and uh, it wants to try and understand uh, capitalism and other aspects of political economy from a different set of methodological principles, right? And, and mostly through historicization. So, for example, uneven and combined development is a major problem because it, it wants to kind of theorize the international in this sort of law-like way uh, that gives this the, the, the equation of how to solve the, the multiplicity, entanglement, uh, unevenness and combination, right? Um, so political Marxism also has, I, can, I think, issues with more general global historical sociology, potentially less fractiously, potentially, than with UCD, but, uh, but it has issues in terms of maybe the indeterminacy, the contingency, and the, the slight randomness of maybe those accounts. So, you know, it situates itself maybe more in, a, in the middle of that spectrum between kind of empirically very open and, and theoretically uh, very determined. Um, so, I mean, the last points on this, um, you know, I don't want to go too much on, on issues around theorizing the international, but I think that they, they are helpful to see why political Marxism is different to that. Uh, and this idea that theorizing the international, for me anyway, I don't want to speak for all political Marxists here because there are clearly nuances, but I, I do feel there's an issue in terms of thinking that theorizing the international is going to be a sort of messiah uh, and, and a sort of kind of, it's going to unlock, as people say, or, or kind of the, there's a promised breakthrough of what it can bring to IR theory that I'm, I'm not sure, you know, we should be putting all our hopes in that. We need to just do this tough work of historicizing and taking each historical or, or empirical problem on its own and, and developing that and not giving too much explanatory burden to these so-called theories. So that would be um, where I think political Marxism uh, is on this. But there are, you know, a really important common ground to finish on a more positive note uh, of how PM stands in relation to these other theories and, and approaches. And, and the common ground in a, in a piece that uh, Go, Lawson and uh, Carvalho wrote recently, you know, the, this focus on rich detail of historical international relations, alongside an emphasis on configurations of social relations and how they combine in a particular context in order to generate discrete outcomes. So that you know, that's really the core of the work here. Uh, and I like that formulation. So, so I wanted to repeat it. Um, so that's how we, I think, are doing, trying to do the same work in international historical sociology. Thank you very much for this very insightful answer, Maya. Um, and for those listeners who are not familiar yet, although that's probably inevitable when you come across PM who are not familiar with UCD and even in combined development, we have our upcoming so the next episode on that. So let's get a bit further into method. Um, political Marxism attributes importance to individual agency and takes seriously the fact that agency can rarely be derived from context or unprecedented conditions. Several PM scholars therefore deploy the method of radical historicism. Where do you see the advantages or maybe also disadvantages of the radical sources method and in which regard does it progress political Marxism and perhaps in which does it? Yeah, thank you. Um, straight into the, the thick of it, uh, basically. Um, so the question of agency, I think, can be traced back to what I was mentioning earlier in terms of, you know, what made England specific? Right. Um, and to, to understand what made England specific in the early modern period and a bit later, our um, uh, political Marxists use the concept of social property relations. 
Now, if you're a bit familiar with Marxism, um, this is not a concept that Marx used. So instead, Marx would use social relations of production. Uh, but Brenner developed the concept of social relations, a uh, social property relations to emphasize something a little bit different. And Ellen Wood did a lot of work theorizing and, and explaining that concept better. But it's trying to basically be less economically determined uh, or how people have seen a production to be mostly economically determined, which is not what Marx was doing, but that's how it was developed in the 20th century. So we use social property relations to emphasize a broader set of relations that cover uh, political, legal, uh, uh, cultural, religious, you know, most economic, obviously, <laughs> you know, forget that one. Um, but to try and say all those aspects of society come together are all necessary conditions to major transformations in modes of production or, or, or uh, you know, big societal transformations such as capitalism, okay? Capitalism is not the only major social transformation that's happened in the history of humanity, right? There are many others. So that's not just capitalism that can be explained by this concept. It can be a range of other m major grand, large-scale social transformations. But obviously our main concern at the moment is with capitalism. Um, so social property relations... Um, for political Marxists, is a way of bringing agency back into the picture, right? Now, that doesn't mean that they're just, just focused on agency. They could say, they would probably call themselves, uh, they, I, <laughs> we probably call themselves agency-centred, but that doesn't mean we have an account of agency that lacks structural conditions or, or an awareness of structure. Um, so... Uh, that that should uh, uh, be explained, and I'll and I'll explain how that relates to the concept of class, for example. Um, but what that allows us is to understand agents not as individual rational actors, right, as a lot of IR theory does, but in interdependence with these economic, uh, political, legal, environmental factors. So class for, for Marxists in general is a social relation. It's not an identity. It's not a uh, an expectation of behavior. It's a social relation. It's a process. And that's always a key um, aspect to start from. Uh, so it's about the condition of how agents relate to other agents in which they're either in conflict through class struggle or in solidarity, and probably various shades in between that conflict slash solidarity spectrum. But it's that relation between different agents. So radical historicism for me starts from there. It starts to from asking specific historical questions about the emergence of X, X being whatever you want to research, you know, so institutions, grand scale phenomena, a specific events, right? It, it can be anything in, in principle. Uh, but with that baseline question of what are social property relations at the origins of X, okay? Um, and then those specific questions dictate what can be known about the topic. And, and that's where I'm going to kind of drift off the kind of usual political Marxist, maybe, uh, uh, um, you know, 101 summary to say that I really kind of focus a bit on this simple point. It, it sounds really simple, but... I really think that your answer, what you're going to produce from your research, is really as good as your question. And, and it's really determined by it in a sense that your answer is never going to transcend your question in terms of providing a general law or a systemic solution to bigger questions. And that's, I think, a bit the mantra of political Marxism, that to be more modest and cautious about what can be produced through specific historical analysis. 
And that means that radical historicism can be quite limited, right? And, and maybe I should mention that radical historicism is a term developed by Benno uh, Teshka and Sam Nafo in a recent article that we published in the Symposium for Historical Materialism um, uh, that came out this year, came out, no, last year, I think. Um, and, um, and so not all political Marxists will probably adhere to that more radical uh, part of political Marxism, but... Um, so I guess a, a little caution to, to that. But uh, what we, to come back to what I was saying is that radical historicism can seem quite limited um, in the sense that it doesn't produce a super catchy, bite-sized headline um, that are often required either by social media these days or even now more and more by funding bodies. Right. So people want to see big, catchy outcomes from your research. And the truth is that when you actually go into the historical detail, it's messy, you know, it's complicated. Um, you're not going to be able to achieve as much as people would like you to achieve. And that's difficult in today's, I think, academic knowledge production world. Right? Um, so radical historicism goes against, I think, what especially IR theory has been really prominent for producing those kind of catchy billiard board table uh, images of, of how the world works, right? Um, so that's always something. And, and we see, I think, today with every new major geopolitical crisis, these kind of easy schematic explanations just uh, come back and are just branded all over the news and you think, oh, God, <laughs> kind of the classic realist great power rivalry uh thing you know and maybe I'll, I'll provide more examples of that later on um but yeah i mean I, I, however there are obviously limits to to radical historicism from a more imminent perspective i guess i would say it can be problematic for, for me for example uh looking at international law right so um for marxist approaches to international law a lot of the questions that people want to know is um does international actually exist separately from capitalism, right? Does it have any teeth against capitalism? That's the big, you know, million-dollar question. And radical historicism or political Marxism is not great at answering that question. You know, it can answer it from a different direction by saying, well, you know, what we're interested in the making of capitalism and international law. How did those things come about? And I think they came about separately. Um, and that then has implications for how, you know, we can assess the, the, the practical aspect of international law today. But obviously, other, other approaches that will be more structural uh, will probably be better at answering those questions. So, uh, you know, the work of Dina Tsuvala, Rob Knox, Rose Parfit, which, you know, I really uh, obviously uh, support and think is really influential, but it does that job of looking at the logics of international versus the logics of capital accumulation. Right. And so if you're interested in those questions, you are going to like those approaches, which are more based on Pashukanis and Altusser, uh, uh and can be linked back to what we were talking about about UCD uh, earlier on. But those will be better for that kind of question. So, you know, the other point is to, to say that uh, maybe the other issue I have with radical historicism is that it hasn't dealt much with the subjectivity questions from, from a more philosophical, epistemological question of what can be known. Uh, so it just assumes kind of everything can be known historically. And I'm, you know, not too sure that that's really tenable. Uh, and because it's interesting to think what can be known in a capitalist society and how capitalism does uh, structure our ways of knowing. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, I'd be intrigued um, if you followed this question and to, to be able to read about that at some point in the future. But let's 
move on to your own work now. You mentioned it briefly um, before. So jurisdictional practices have yeah, been widely neglected in Marxist historical research on international relations. However, your work is concerned with the legal dimensions of the state and international relations and those legal agents hitherto underrepresented in IR. But what does it actually mean to look at international law from a Marxist perspective? Like, in, in how far was Marx actually concerned with law? And how do those laws that seem logically necessary for a capitalist society, for instance, for the protection of property rights, relate to the field of international law? Thanks. Yeah, so a lot of big questions there that I'm, you know, not going to be able to do justice to in, in the time we have. And there's been so much, you know, great stuff written. If people are interested in these questions, I would suggest looking at the blog, the website, A Legal Form, which is a, a Marxist, um, you know, legal scholarship uh, uh, website. And it has loads of great resources on all these questions. So I will put that into the yeah, show yes. notes for our listeners. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, but, you know, uh, on very briefly, Marx was extremely interested in law. He was groundbreaking in how he introduced uh, legal issues or looked at, you know, the political economy of law uh, and did so in various writings, uh, in kind of more fragmentary writings, uh, more specifically. Um, but uh, so, you know, there's a lot to take out from what uh, Marx wrote, you know, even also in, in Capital, there's a lot on legal statutes, on on um, uh, various aspects of uh, the monarchy's uh, uh, legal uh, attempt to to frustrate uh, um, any kind of revolt and etc. and and to discipline uh, uh, populations and to work etc. So um, and a lot on on actual how a monetary uh, policy operates as well. So um, there's a lot there, but it's quite fragmentary, and there's there isn't an explicit uh, theory of of law and capitalism or law and capital, to be more exact, in Marx. Uh, and so that's been that was work that was done uh, subsequently by Pashukanis, for example, the the Soviet theorist who was you know had a revival in kind of the last thirty years or so, uh, and is a you know fantastic scholar. Um, uh, but a range of other authors, and especially in the last 10 years or so, it's it's kind of exploded since the, the book by China Mieville and, and others, as I've mentioned before, Dina Tavala, Robin Knox, etc., who have really uh, brought this uh, work to the fore. So there's a lot uh, uh, there now to, to go into. Um, more, a lot of it tends to be more structural and theoretical, though, uh, due to Pashukanis' influence. And that's something I take on and I is more specifically have a critique of, of Mieville in my book, um, who Mieville takes on a very, you know, re-enlivens Pashukanis for international law and works much more on the development of international law. Um, so my approach, as you will have gathered already, is more historical, more uh, agent-centred, um, and I explore the distinction between law and jurisdiction. So, um, you know, I'll come back maybe to that also a bit later. But, um, you know, what I um, what I do in the project is I make a strong Marxist claim towards the historical and political condition of law, which is what, you know, Marx kind of brings to the table uh, uh, in terms of legal theory. Um, but I also want to try and reject the simple narratives of how uh, legal regimes, legal actors relate to capitalism and to imperialism. I want to break down a little bit those links. And the main argument uh, is that jurisdiction is a practice of um, legal ordering, 
and a practice of expansion, um, which doesn't fit into the story that Pashukan is about the commodification of uh, the legal form under capitalism. So uh, again, I'm going into a bit expert vocabulary here about Pashukanis, but and, and Marxism, but uh, uh, and I'm not going to do it justice by trying to explain it. So please, you know, go and have a look at, at this website where there's a lot of of this literature. But it's the idea that um, the law is commodified under capitalism, to be very brief, and uh, and that's how the um, legal relations, the law becomes uh, a bourgeois. Uh, uh, element of uh, the state and society and uh, therefore becomes subsumed by capitalist logics of accumulation and therefore the law props up the capitalist system okay so you know to the question the previous question of you know can the law does the law have any teeth against capitalism uh, most Marxists, especially people from Pashukanis, will say, no, you know, the law is, is the structure of capitalism. And especially international law is even more the structure of capitalism than the law itself, and the, than the kind of more domestic aspects of the law, because it's less uh, developed, you know, it's more influenced and determined by great power uh, politics, etc. And so I argued that Pash uh, Mieville actually has quite a realist, if you want to see it that way, explanation of of, uh, of the international system. And, you know, that link between realism and Marxism has been made for a long time. Um, but I was trying to say something different by using this concept of jurisdiction. And uh, to basically say, you know, I think an example for this distinction between law and jurisdiction uh, can be also applied to different uh, aid legal agents, which is more what I look at. So I look at, you know, try and question who's doing what, right? And if you look at the early modern empires, um, you see colonizers, you see uh, uh, settlers, you see a lot of diplomats, you see a lot of lawyers. Um, and if you compare those terms, if you know how we speak of colonizers or capitalists, or settlers or imperialists, those are politically loaded terms, right? Whereas if you compare them to the terms of like a diplomat or a lawyer, you assume a kind of neutrality about those uh, subjects, about those agents, about, you know, there's something official, there's something neutral about what diplomats, lawyers are meant to do. Whereas a colonizer is clearly something that is linked to a political and economic project. And in a way, that's a bit the distinction between law and jurisdiction. Law is the kind of the broader uh, structural, if you want, uh, ensemble of, of uh, uh, relations that uh, is linked to a political project, for Marxists anyway, whereas jurisdiction is a kind of more neutral technical aspect of legal mechanisms or legal institutions and I kind of dispute that and say well actually if we look at jurisdiction we get to the more kind of the making of right the law and the making of imperialism the making of various aspects of uh, expansion and um and that's the point also about political Marxism is that you don't really know where it's going to take you. So I started looking at jurisdiction or, or at some of these agents and I know, wasn't too sure what I was going to find, right? And it wasn't about, I didn't set out to, to dislodge uh, Althusserian or Pashukanite Marxism. You know, it was more about, okay, well, let's look at what's going on historically. And and I found out that, you know, the hist history did go against that structural, that story. But I guess that, that was also part of the journey. Um, and and I think that's really important. That's why also I think my concept of jurisdictional accumulation is a bit loose. Uh, and I, that's in response to a recent review. But I would defend that because I think it is important that you keep conceptual um, 
tools uh, loose to make to allow for different historical uh, narratives. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I might leave the question there um, and and come back a bit to it in in some respects. But I guess the point I wanted to make was that um, you know capitalism is a secondary issue in a way here, um, and the aim was to kind of understand international from a Marxist perspective without the burden of how does it relate to capitalism always and and try and think okay well what is what is apply applying a Marxist approach to the history of international produce and it produced analysis of different agents and I looked a lot at diplomats and that was something I wasn't expecting at the end of the project but uh, that's the specifically consuls as specific types of diplomats um so that's kind of where it took me yeah thank you very much um so yeah let's engage with the implications of this approach. Like you argue that the current discourse of judicial globalization needs to be resituated in the alternative historical and theoretical framework you developed. What are examples from your perspective in the face of contemporary conflicts, for instance, that leading states remain reluctant to fully endorse the role of international legal institutions, as in the cases of the US that Russia and China are still refusing to officially acknowledge the International Criminal Court? Sure, thanks. So, uh, yeah, the, the tough but, but essential question of, of trying to link back all this historical work to some extent to, to what's going on today. And um, so, I mean, uh, you know, perhaps need to say a little bit more about what uh, jurisdictional accumulation uh, actually is to some extent. But, um, I mean... <sighs> The project first started, the pieces, this is a PhD project, right? So, you know, it's finished that in 2012, and then the book came out 2020 to 2021. So it's been a long time, you know, in the making and, and transformation uh, of this project. But it originally started with a desire to understand the contemporary process of judicial globalization, which um, is uh, the um, kind of typical you know, end of 90s liberal world order story of, um, you know, linked to democratic peace theory and this idea of the, the, the end of the, the end of history, um, you know, Fukuyama's concept that the world is just becoming more liberal now and liberalism um, um, produces more liberalism and therefore more liberal institutions such as courts uh, and a judicial uh, an international judicial system and not so much that it proliferates in terms of international um uh, jurisdictions such as um international uh, courts but more in terms of the uh flattening and, and connections networks between domestic uh courts right globally so that was the idea of judicial globalization, that we have this uh, leveling and a networking of judges, of courts, this communication and, and, and uh, proliferation of judicial decisions made uh, that, that take from other domestic courts, etc. And part of that was the issue of extraterritoriality also uh, exploding in this era um, and issues of universal jurisdiction to some extent. Um, and so my work was grounded in trying to understand what is this jurisdictional complexity, this fragmentation, uh, which, you know, if you're not a liberal, you would say, well, actually, this is US uh, or Western legal hegemony or imperialism, right? This is not uh, the world is all getting much better. It's actually, well, this is one way of 
governing that is becoming more dominant and that is obscuring a dark side of its governing and forgetting the exploitation and the uh, erasure of, of a, lo a lot of other legal cultures and legal processes, right? So the, the, the obviously the dark side of liberalism. And so I would then kind of trace back and think, well, what is this history of extraterritoriality? You know, now it, it, it was seen in the 19th century as something that produced, uh, that was an imperial uh, strategy, but it's seen in the late 20th, early 21st century as a, uh, 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 a, a, a peacening or, you know, a process that allows um uh, economies and, and states to um, to civilize uh, still in that sense and to um, you know in a, in a civil in sense that it civilizes in a way that is neutral that is more acceptable you know without the violence and the coercion of the 19th century imperialism etc so I wanted to, 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 to break that down and say, well, wait a minute, you know, historically, why is this concept of extraterritoriality being neutralized? What is its background? And, and like I was saying before, it took me way back, further back uh, than I thought to the early modern period, to early modern empires and trying to really say, well, actually, you know, what is this legal history? Where does this concept of extraterritoriality come from? Um, and, uh, and that's where I ended up with early modern empires. So I think, you know, to come back to your question about how does this, what are the implications for today of all this, um, I think putting jurisdiction back on the table as a key concept of international order is really important. And that's kind of the work I want to do also more in the future of thinking, well, what, you know, what does that amount to? Um, you know, beyond just that critique of liberalism, okay, obviously, we want to say something more substantial than that. Um and um, for now, what the book produced was not that analysis. It produced analysis of what jurisdiction did in the early modern empires uh, and potentially what it could do um, and thinking about its continued relevance, um, obviously, but, but that work still needs to be done. And, uh, and I also, you know, coming back to what political Marxism does, it doesn't want to just generate these general laws from historical analysis, okay? So I don't want to have a theory of jurisdiction from the historical analysis I did. That would, that would defeat the point. Um, but, um, but nevertheless, historical sociology is also about writing history, rewriting history for the present, because you're always rewriting history, right? History isn't fixed, and it's not something that, um, that is then established, right? It's not an antiquarian project. So obviously, what I wrote about history was determined by what's going on today. And, you know, you, you mentioned this idea of the continued authority of great powers, right, in the face of international legal institutions today. Um, and so can jurisdictional accumulation help understand this? And, and, and that's a structural, obviously, um, problem, right, of the inefficacy of international law, the inefficiency or inefficacy or, or lameness, uh, which Marxists would argue is structural. It's, it's, it's embedded, it's, it's, um, it's intentional to capitalism, if you want, to, to its logic that we have an international legal system that doesn't work. Right? Um, so can jurisdictional accumulation really help understand that? Well, not in the sense that I've developed it for the early modern period, because that's now the world has changed a lot. 
That's the point, right? And, and jurisdictional accumulation is not, for me, equated with capital accumulation. And um, that was an issue, um, you know, I, I haven't got around to explaining exactly those specifics, but um, but th- those things are not uh, equated. So for me, jurisdictional accumulation is a different process to capital accumulation, and it uh, clashes with it in many respects. It also can be combined with it, but that's a very rare occasion. So what's happening with jurisdictional accumulation is a process that early modern empires uh, um I, that I observed in early modern empires. But uh, so whether it can explain today would be a little bit contradictory for me. So I think something else is going on today. But um, what I think the method of jurisdictional accumulation, what I try and do in the book more generally, is to rather than thinking of, you know, this great power rivalry or this inefficacy of international as a structural problem, let's look more at certain agents, actors that are more in the shadows of those processes. Um, So, for example... How is jurisdiction played out in the ad hoc tribunals of the WTO, you know, the famous ISDS uh, uh, adjudicatory bodies, um, you know, set up by free trade agreements, you know, who is negotiating the privileges and subjectivities of states, investors, uh, judges, citizens, etc., you know, are investors accumulating jurisdiction as a form of capital accumulation? Of course they are, you know, investors such as, you know, corporations or, or uh, you know, other financial agents. And I, I guess the big question is, can citizens resist those processes and, and have a play a role in a kind of more global judicial system? You know, I would like to think so. I'm obviously a bit sceptical, but there are, you know, important mechanisms and, and um and projects such as extraterritorial obligations project, which is led by uh, lawyers and NGOs, trying to kind of keep corporations to account. You know, there's uh, some interesting work in the business and human rights section of, of also scholarship and activism, trying to kind of bring uh, more clarity and transparency to to what's going on globally uh in that realm um uh, so those are questions obviously that i'm interested in and i think um i think we need to look at rather than from a structural perspective but need to look at from the kind of more agent-centered perspective as marxist and the last thing i'll say is uh, uh bs chimney's work on jurisdiction has also been used uh, to try and trace differences between dominant and subaltern international legal processes and so that's something i'm looking at very closely and uh, and hope to respond to at some point yeah thank you very much great um to stick a bit with the present or also yeah look into the close future. What do you think are the current challenges and perspectives for political Marxism in general, just moving away from from your specific research? Other theories, for instance, we mentioned at UCD, also post-colonial theory have taken off in recent years. Do you think PM can do the same? And what does PM need to do in terms of theory, methodology and empirics? But on the other hand, also, where do you see political Marxism's uniqueness? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I've touched a bit on these points in in the other questions as well. Um, But, um, you know, of course, uh, as I said, there are limitations to political Marxism because I I don't think it can deliver what is often desired uh, by IR theory or or, or by, you know, kind of more, you know... More flashy headlines, uh, as you said. Yeah. You know the catchy headline bit and, and kind of media commentators, which uh, which can be problematic. But 
um at the same time and 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 it has to be said that i think i guess ucd is um has had uh it's become very influential work you know beyond dia um and uh, and obviously post-colonial theory that's a you know a whole bigger fish uh uh much bigger fish here to, to deal with and tackle and and um you know has managed i think to to, to engage in debates today that are in contemporary debates around critical race theory and issues you know really issues of um salient issues of of uh, oppression in terms of minorities and um and issues in universities and in schools more broadly uh you know the statues uh style so you know that um that kind of intervention is really crucial and i think political marxism remains more academic it has to be said uh, and the question can it become more politically engaged in these everyday debates um i think it can in the sense that questions about the origins of capitalism are ever present uh, you know you can have these discussions down the pub without knowing it or you know i mean uh, recently i was doing a um, podcast on the relationship uh, between food and um english identity and the question of the origins of capitalism is really important for that right um so you know there are ways in which political marxism can better intervene i think in in uh, important kind of day-to-day questions but we shouldn't also just i don't want to promise too much because this is something also that i think ucd maybe is problematic at you know promising promising a bit too much um and um you know the more theoretically there's this issue of the agency structure debate which may have caused us more problems than, than solved and, and you know I'll refer you to this symposium we, we published in historical materialism recently where we try and tackle this and hopefully something will come out of it that will take us a little bit away from from that problematic uh, uh, debate um, but I think what I was saying and I'll probably finish on this uh, idea of you know um, is structuralism back with you know every current geopolitical crisis um, and how do we get away from just focusing on the actions of an individual, you know, such as Putin and, and, uh, and how easily an apparent system can be disrupted? Um, now, those aren't prob- maybe questions that political Marxism is directly concerned with, but it's definitely questions that they can, can help to, to address and to kind of think differently, right? And to I think, well, actually, let's look at the diplomatic trends, uh, the underlying economic networks, the, 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 the various kind of more nitty-gritty ways in which those um, those events can actually be more uh, predictable, uh, you know, um, and, and think that, you know, those big events that take up all the news will actually, you know, they are also a bit of a smokescreen for other things that are happening every day. Um, and uh, and it's not about, you know, the fault of specific individuals or, or of the anarchic world order, right? Uh, to fall back onto those explanations is problematic all the time. So the advantage of political Marxism is to refuse also to fall into the trap of those big structural uh, answers. And that's also on the left can be problematic. I mean, there's been some really shoddy and embarrassing Marxist takes on how Putin is an anti-imperialist and which I, you know, complete bullshit. I'm sorry. Or, um, you know, I'm not sure I should... Uh, you want to publish that, but um, um, but the idea is that political Marxism helps us to provide a more rigorous and more nuanced analysis that doesn't fall into those traps, um, which are, as I said, quite embarrassing. Yeah.
Brilliant. Thank you. And lastly, um, I'm sure our listeners would, would appreciate some book or reading recommendations. Well, um, at the moment, I have to say that uh, Rob the Rainbow um, <laughs> and Sound of the Seashore are amazing. <laughs> because I have a six-month daughter and she takes up most of my time. So, Do you remember um, any yeah. of your previous readings? <laughs> but apparently I have, like, thankfully, towers of books around my house which remind me that I used to read other things. So in those <laughs> towers of books, um, uh, yeah, obviously I'd, I'd like to plug a, a few people. And, uh, I mean, I think uh, a lot of Marxists at the moment are reading or rereading Mike Davis because, unfortunately, there's news that he's quite ill. And uh, so, you know, I think it's a good person to mention if people want to start reading some Marxism and, and find something that's accessible and, and, and exciting to read and Mike Davis is amazing to read and he's covered so many topics and um, there's, you know, everybody can find something that interests them in, in his uh, very vast bibliography. Um, so and, uh, he's a fantastic person. So, um, yeah, I'd recommend Mike Davis. Um, also, Neil Davidson for more specific political Marxism, um, uneven and combined development. Sadly, Neil also passed away a few years ago, but um, his work is so important and we miss him in times of, political UK commentary that uh, is required today um, following the events of, of uh, Boris Johnson's uh, <clears throat> resignation with uh, quote marks. So uh, yeah, a bit of sense from him would have been great. Um, and I mean, I've been really enjoying Camping and Collas's work on capitalism and the sea, which, you know, a political Marxism is uh, have, probably have some issues with, but it's, you know, it's really rich empirically work. And that's the kind of thing we need to be doing. We need to empirically connect with other forms of, um, you know, with other works in Marxism and maybe get away a bit from the theoretical uh, debate because I think the important is a lot of the empirical stuff we're seeing is similar and just needs to be compared and, and debated. There's a lot of great work on jurisdictional fluidity and multiplicity at the moment. People, legal scholars such as Renisa Mawani, Sunjo Pahuja, um, there's a lot, you know, I've been reading mostly critical law stuff, right, in the last 10, 15 years, and that's kind of where it's at for me more than the IR stuff, I have to say. So I'm a bit of a, you know, um, traitor to the IR literature. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people are coming to that as well. And I've mentioned, you know, the critic in Marxist uh, international lawyers as well. Um, last thing I'll maybe I'll plug is Heide Gerstenberger's book, Market and Violence, is coming out in English and she is a classic and um, her work really needs to be read. Um, and my final one maybe was Andreas Maum's work, which has taken up political Marxism in his book on fossil capital and has also intervened in contemporary issues uh, in a really important way and I think needs to be engaged with more broadly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll leave it there. Thank <laughs> you so much, Maya, for being our guest today. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.